0: We're in Matthew chapter 6 for the second week in a row. Uh, If you were here last week, you heard me say that this might be one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, it was the very first sermon that I ever preached. I love that Jesus says, if, if you're a follower of Christ, if you live in the kingdom, if you seek first the kingdom, we have nothing to worry about. We have just confidence that God will take care of us like he takes cares, care of the birds of the field and, and the lilies in the valley and how much more will he take care of us. And I've always loved just the confidence that we have in knowing that we belong to God's kingdom. But before we get to that, which will come up next week, uh, we're going to spend another week really uh, as an extension of what we talked about last week. So if you were here with us last week, this will come by way of summary. But if you weren't, I want to share a little bit about what the beginning of this chapter states, because it was something that really we all needed to hear. It was An answer to the question of why so often, especially in the day and age we live in, the church movement, the church culture, the church people sometimes feel less than excited about church. And we, we mentioned this this startling statistic last week that the the growth of our country and population is is really not something that correlates to the growth of the church. The church is is shrinking, and there 's less people going to church and, and When you look for a reason as to why that there are seats open this morning that may have been filled by someone who used to go to church or who would have gone to church except for the objections against church, one of the main reasons, if you talk to all of them, there's a there's a lot, but one of the main reasons that people will give was something we talked about all last week, which is that one word, hypocrisy. So often when you come to church, one of the, the worst experiences you can have is when what is preached from the pulpit is not actually practiced in life. It's not only something that is, is confusing for an outsider looking in, but in your own life, if you follow God or you wanna know God, but, but there's no substance, it's just religious activity, or as we said last week, religious theater, then you're gonna be left wanting because we are not designed just to practice religion and do all of the rituals around religion. And Jesus says, hypocrites do that but the reward is not God. The reward will just be the attention that you receive from religious theater. So I say all of that in summary because Jesus, as the wise master teacher he is, will never bring up a problem without giving us a solution. And so if one of the problems of our age is hypocrisy, we have to ask the question, what's the solution? How do we be people who genuinely pursue God and have hearts that align with our mouths as we worship or proclaim his goodness? And that is the top of conversation today. So last week, the problem of hypocrisy, we'll actually find the answer this morning in one of the most famous passages of scripture in the Bible that we often call the Lord's Prayer. So I I told you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, Many of you can probably listen to this sermon and have reference points to every verse just based off the memorization of this incredible prayer. But this prayer that we're gonna study this morning is the answer for the empty feeling that church sometimes leaves people with. This is the answer for hypocrisy. This is the answer for a church that's very active on Sunday but dead during the week. This is the answer for a heart that wants to know God but is left wanting. It is found and revived, and made known to God in the power of prayer. Prayer is the answer to hypocrisy. Genuine heart before God is found in your genuine prayer life. And so that's what we'll look at today. One of the, in, in just preparing for this, one of the quotes that I stumbled across that got me so excited about this sermon being an answer to some of the problems of our age is an E.M. Bounds quote that I want to share with you now. It says, what the church needs today is not more machinery, not new organizational methods or novel ideas on how to grow the church. Now, E.M. Bounds lived in a different age, but he could say that of his day, he could say it of our day, he could say it throughout church history, that what a church age needs to be revived in the power of God is never found simply in methodology or novel ideas. Not saying there isn't A good reason for us to share our experiences in ways that we found fruit in the church age we live in. But when we're looking to find a real encounter with the living God, it is not found in methodology. What the quote will go on to say is, What we must have is men by whom the Holy Spirit can use men of prayer, mighty men of prayer. Because the Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come to machinery, but men, and He does not anoint plans before He anoints the prayers of men and women and God's people. The revival of our hearts and our church and our age is never found in just cracking the code of ministry methodology and it will never be found in your life in the same way. There is not a book that I can give you or a conference I can send to you or an idea that you just have to unlock that will all of a sudden make God come alive to you. What makes God come alive is always and only God himself. And how do you know God himself? Through the power of prayer. So today, we're gonna look at that section in Matthew chapter six that really hones in on the opposite of hypocrisy. In verse 5, it says this. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, they have the reward. That was the emphasis of last week, that when you really look for the difference between a genuine heart after God and a difference between a religious theater, it is the motivation to be seen and known by God versus seen and known by men. And how often do we find ourselves walking the tightrope and erring on the side of, well, I made it to church, and I said the prayer, and I sang the song, and I was around the brothers and sisters, and I've checked into the roll call of church, so surely I must be on the straight and narrow with Christ. And it's like, no, it's not what it's about. That is the tightrope that can easily lead to religious theater, where you're patting yourself on the back because your reward is simply to be seen at church where the actual reward is to be known by God and to know him intimately. So Jesus is now going to give us a remedy by which we are revived in our relationship with God apart from religious theater. He says, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Before we get to the Lord's Prayer, we get to the run up to how Jesus even sets the table by which we would be interacting with God in a genuine and real way. And what he says is, find a place in your life, call it the secret place, call it the depths of your heart or the alone and quiet that you have with God in your mind. And let that be the only measure by which you are seen before God. Be so alone with God that there can be no confusion about who you are praying for. Be so quiet before the Lord that there is no interaction with people part of it, not that we can't have public prayer at time or corporate worship, but to know the genuineness of your heart before God, he says, go and find him in secret. And I was so blessed by this. I emphasize this even before we get to the Lord's Prayer because in finding God and being genuine before him, Jesus says, seek after him in a way where there's no one around. And if you really do that, If you really pursue a secret place with the Lord, what you'll find is that to find God in your life, the day-to-day life, which will come up in the rhythm of this prayer, it requires you to make an attempt to find him. There is a seeking nature to this prayer. Before he even opens his words as to the manner by which you pray, there is a manner by which you seek after God. Because the secret place, if you have not noticed, is not easy to find, that was true of jesus day no doubt because we get another reference to the lord's prayer in luke chapter 11 right after he says this is the manner by which you would pray but what we call the lord's prayer he says it's kind of like this imagine there is a man who's asleep in his bed and a neighbor knocks on the door because he's got an unexpected visitor and he needs some bread he's fresh out so he's pounding on the door at midnight and that is the teaching point to say keep going, keep seeking, be a persistent seeker of God. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, the man is in bed with all of his children. And he's so annoyed that this guy's knocking, he's basically gonna wake up the whole household because in ancient days, it's not like they had three bedroom, two bath households where everybody had their own bed. It's like describing the scene. The whole family is in the living room or whatever they called it. And if you knock on the door, you're waking everybody up. Now I read that and I think, man, how'd they find a secret place? where do you go to be alone with the Lord? Go outside, ancient days, you better find some shade. You better find somewhere near water. You better make it a pursuit of your life to make your life alone with God something you are willing to fight for. Because I can tell you this, if the application of this in the conviction of the Spirit for your life is to carve out a secret place for your life, it's not magically waiting for you after this service. As i looked after my own secret place this week. I was like, okay, it's not in the upstairs office because there's just too much going on around the church for me to just seek the Lord alone in the private of the office. So it's go home. And it's like, no, I've got four kids and they're always hungry and there's no quiet time in that place. And so it's like, okay, go somewhere, find the Lord alone with him and if you haven't noticed, our city is growing, our trails, trails are filling up, the river is very popular. And after about an hour and a half of just walking around and trying to find quiet, I finally opened my Bible and lift my heart. And I said, God, it is a struggle to find you day to day. And if you want to have a genuine relationship with the Lord, you have a daily rhythm that is willing to struggle to the secret place, wherever it is for you this day or tomorrow. It's not the place that is sacred. It is the power of God's presence that will make any attempt that you have to seek him in the secret place come alive. The goal of this, if you're listening to the words of Jesus, is to say, are you seeking God like that? To get away from all of the other pursuits of your life and to be alone with God requires a pursuit. And what I love about this prayer is it's setting you up for that pursuit in a rhythm that every single day you are willing to get out of the busyness, to get away from the noise, to quiet your heart, and to know who God is in your life. What else does he say? When you pray, go to your secret place. And don't use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you even ask him. There's another run-up to this that we have to be so mindful of when we study the Lord's Prayer because Jesus says you really don't have to be loud and boisterous and in the streets. That's really just to be seen by men. But even before God, you don't have to use vain repetitions as if you're trying to get God's attention. You don't have to to go through your prayer life and it it requires five or ten minutes of you begging God to listen to you. He said the heathens do that. We believe in a God who has an ear that is inclined to hear. And he compares this to a father, which we'll talk about in the opening prayer or the manner by which we should pray. But it's good to point out now because he says, your father knows what you need. You don't have to beg him to see the headline of your life, that if only he'd be attentive to your life, he would see what you actually need. The idea is that if you go to God, God is waiting to hear your cry. Earthly fathers, not so much. I just think of vain repetition, and it is actually a method by which my children get my attention. They like pull on my shirt and they say the same thing 25 times until I listen. That's not God. He does not need to be woken from his slumber or focused from his distraction or listen to you finally get his attention because you said it enough times. We say all that because how often has the very next application of this been abused the lord's prayer can turn into a vain repetition in my preparation of the preaching of the lord's prayer it was like maybe i'll just say this a hundred times until it kind of comes out of me what could be prayed and then i realized that's the way that we've misused this prayer for centuries. It's like, let's repeat it as a congregation, go home and do 10, unless you've been really off track, then do 50, and make this a repetition of your life until the Lord finally hears you. God is inclined to dwell with his people. God knows your needs. God isn't needing to be awoken from his sleep. The power of prayer is something that we do to awaken our own soul to his goodness and his faithfulness and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his will. So as we approach the Lord's Prayer, we realize that we approach it with a determination to pursue him and a belief that he will be waiting, that if we seek, we'll find, and if we knock, the door will be opened. So now, how do we pray? How do we use the Lord's Prayer as the revival of the genuine hearts of worship we have by which we would uh, be freed from hypocrisy or dead religion and be alive with the presence of God? Well, there's a couple things I'll say on the onset. One, Just meditating as you pray through this and the framework is there for you will be so simple and so profound that if you spend time in the presence of God and just go through this for your own life and recite the Lord's prayer with your own application in your heart, you will be blessed. In fact, as Jesus encourages his disciples not to use vain repetitions, he offers them a prayer that takes about 15 seconds to get through. So don't wait until you have an hour or a prayer retreat set aside to seek the Lord, but seek him with the confidence that by this framework, you will be blessed in what the Lord has taught you to do in prayer. The other way that you can use this is by using each one of these portions and petitions of the Lord's Prayer as framework by which you allow the Spirit to pray more and more through you. And we'll get to each one of those things that could be prayed beyond just the words of the Lord prayer this morning. But what we'll find in the pattern of this is a way for us to stay so anchored in all of the ways that our relationship with God will be full of life and vitality. So the first thing he says, pray in this manner. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And just that statement alone could be a sermon. We could, we could write a sermon about every line of the Lord's Prayer, but this is called Summer on the Mount, not the, the sermon for the year. But we're going to try to put it all into one package. But this one profound thing can change your entire prayer life. Jesus says to pursue God as our Father. And In your own prayer life, look how often that we we run up to the Lord or we approach him in a way that that uses the word God, And, and he is God, and he is Lord. But there is such a subtle yet profound shift that happens when we acknowledge that we are coming into the presence of God and he desires to be known as our father. There is a very large distinction between God and all of the theology that comes with knowing him and the mystery of who he is and understanding him in the relationships that he's given us to have a reference point to how he wants to be known in our lives, which is a father, a father who cares for his children, a father who provides, a father who has authority to give wise direction and counsel a father who, as it says, is in heaven, representing the perfection of everything fatherhood was ever meant to be. And again, we look to Luke chapter 11 because there is an enhancement of the Lord's prayer that helps us understand what Jesus is getting at when we look at God as not just a distant, all-powerful being, but a relational father who has come to make us sons and daughters by the rights of adoption for anyone who would receive the son would be made sons and daughters of God, John chapter one. In Luke chapter 11, he says this. If a son asks for bread, what father among you will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Here's the idea that Jesus is getting at. What we find in the God-given natural inclination towards children, not always lived out perfectly, but he said, what father among you, broadly inviting anyone to relate to this analogy, fathers know how to care for their kids and they actually enjoy, long for, want to care for their children. I was watching a documentary not long ago and it was a documentary that maybe I found interesting because my wife is Colombian and fascinated by her culture and and her language and, and also her motherland. And so we're watching this documentary on Pablo Escobar who is, if you don't know, maybe the one of the most infamous drug lords of our time. He was uh, one of the, the main faces in the war on drugs that we were, we were fighting against, and he came to great wealth, great power, and he did not get there by godly means. He had murder on his resume, and he had all sorts of nefarious things that he did to get his status, and yet part of the documentary was to give an expose into the private life of Pablo Escobar. And one of the ways they they were allowed us to see who he was is he had two kids. And Pablo Escobar, maybe the face of evil in the 80s, was a great dad. (laughs) By all estimations, he loved his kids. He cared for them. He took them out of poverty and gave them great wealth. He gave them anything they wanted. He was loyal to his children. Which is to say, we get this when it comes to our own kids. How much more will God be careful and loyal and caring and providing to his children? Who among you doesn't care for your kids? How much more does the heavenly father care for his children? So we start this out by saying, God's our father whatever we come to him with, whatever desires we have on our hearts or needs that we bring before him, we are not supposed to think of him as distant, but we are supposed to think of him as a loving father who longs to care for his children. He has given us the right to be called his children for anyone who received his son. And every time you preach about fatherhood as a reference point to God, I have to also follow the disclaimer that Earthly fathers are not perfect and they're not always giving and they're not always careful for the well-being of their children. But we have a father in heaven. Heaven, the, the 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 dwelling place of God that represents his perfection so that when you think of fatherhood, you're not thinking of your own mistaken, broken history, but you're thinking of fatherhood in all of its perfection. That is who God is in our life. And I'm gonna bring this up a lot, but there is a daily rhythm to this prayer, which means this is not something that you need simply for the doctrine of your mind. This is something that we are supposed to live and breathe and be reminded of and confess and profess every day of our life, lest God slowly fade into the background of our religious pursuit, away from Father and toward a distant deity. This morning you wake up, my Father in heaven, And then you come to this other part of a simple yet profound shift in the way that you approach God when you say, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is not a word that we use very often. You have a little bit of that word in the word Halloween, All Hallows Eve. It's this word that could best be described in a word that we use much more often in our proclamation of who God is, which is the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. The Holiness of God is what makes God altogether special and unique and different. We live in a fallen world. God dwells in the perfection of heaven. We live where love is, is seen dimly lit through our relationships, no one perfectly loving one another. And yet God, holy and separate, set apart, always perfectly kind and patient and loving and long suffering. And what we do when we say, Father, holy is your name, is we're saying, may your name have that effect in my life. Because here's the question, is God holy? Is God fully holy? holy and set apart, apart, perfect in all of his ways, different than the fallen world we live in. And the Bible students and the longtime disciples and those of you who know doctrine can nod your head and say, of course God is holy. It's the tenet of the faith, is that God is perfect and we're not. And yet the real question of this prayer is not whether or not you believe in the theology of holiness, but you believe in the personal nature of God's holiness in your own life. Is God holy in your life today? Has God been set apart as someone that is altogether different in the priority of your life, in the worship, in the aim, in the pursuit of your life? Is God's name holy in your heart, not just in your mind? And again, we look for reference points. How can we understand a holy name? What does that look like? Well, I believe if you're like me, you probably have a holy name other than the name of God, that you can kind of get a picture of what it means to have something set apart. For me, the holy name, when it comes into my mind or when I'm in the middle of something and it crosses my screen and that name shows up, is Daniela. It's totally different than all the other names in the audience, in the sanctuary. It's a a name that represents a relationship that is so different. It's the name of my wife, if you didn't know. In fact, when it comes on my screen, it says Colombian princess, (laughs) which she put in there and I just never changed but it to the teaching point it's the only princess in my phone i have a relationship with her that is unique and different and set apart for all of the relationships that are represent, represented here hers is hallowed and you may have a hallowed name no matter what you're doing in your day checking emails writing your, your, your focus time, you're your, your writing the report, or you're in business, or you're studying, and that phone can, there's one name that can break through. There's one name that will, that will be honored and respected more than any other name in your contact list. And whatever that name is, that is a hallowed name for you. It may be a spouse, maybe a son or daughter or best friend, and maybe, or maybe most probably, that name is your own name the name that desires to be set apart and highly prioritized and the name that gets the most respect. In fact, we get this tension that exists between the name of God and our own name, or our own pursuits, when we think about the difference between when Jesus says, don't do your charitable deeds before people to be seen by them, that you would receive glory. And the contrast that comes just a chapter before, Matthew five sixteen, when he says, do your good works before men that your light would shine and they would give glory to God. What name are you living for? What name is the pursuit of your religious activities, of your business ventures? What name is being elevated as the name, as the Bible says, above all names? And what we come to in the daily pursuit of God through this anchor in our prayer life is to say, God, it is your name and your name alone. Your name today, hallowed and set apart means today, may your name be above all names for my life, my prayer. Lord, may your name be above the name Daniela and above the name Tucker and above the name Calvary Chapel and above all other competing holy ventures of my flesh. May it be your name and your name alone that I am pursuing today. Hallowed be your name. And then he says your will be done, or your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is so wise in the way that he took this incredible prayer, he made it something that could live inside of all of our hearts, and built into the prayer is the mission that he was on, to bring heaven To earth, to bring God's kingdom and to bring his authority as rightful king into the world, starting in Jerusalem, then going to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The mission was to take the perfection of the kingdom of heaven and invade earth. And he says to his disciples, Live for that mission every day. It's not a mission that you live for by determination of the mind, the mission of God. It is not a mission that you live for by determination of religion. To live for the kingdom of God, meaning He is the king and you are a grateful citizen about the king's business. To live for that kingdom is a matter of genuine prayer before God. It's not easy to live for the kingdom of God. And again, we look for these moments in our own life when we can think about great expectations for the the hope that we have that the rightful person would be put in place. That's this prayer. It's the kingdom of God, meaning Jesus, you're the king. May you reign today. I think back to a year ago, roughly this time as a country, it happens every four years, every two years if you're extra political, but we were thinking through who should be the leader of our land. And in the conversation, whether you were heavily political, whether you just watched the news, whether it was just a topic of conversation, there was this expectation as to who should lead. And in that expectation, it's like we all had our horse and pony. It's like if this guy gets in, we're going to be in much better shape. If this guy gets out, we'll be in much better shape. If we can just figure out a way to to have a more clear government direction because of clear leadership, then, then, then the place that we live in from city, state to country will be a better place. And the excitement and the expectation and the hunger and the tension that leads up to electing an official is essentially what's happening in your daily prayer life for the kingdom. The ultimate king should reign not in the offices of our politics, not in the offices of our churches, but the king that we wait for is the king that would reign on the throne that is reserved for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what we say in the pursuit of our daily life is today, Lord, will your kingdom continue to expand? His kingdom is here now, and yet his kingdom is not yet here. It's true of the kingdom that will fill the whole earth with his glory, and it's true of the kingdom that lives inside of your heart. If you've accepted Christ, you've said, Lord, reign in my life, and day by day by day, you give him more territory to take over. Reign in my heart, reign in my mind, reign in my relationships. May the kingdom of love and the kingdom of peace and justice and mercy be expanded today. And it happens through a daily commitment to live for God's kingdom. Then he says, give us this day, our daily bread. This is one of the, again, one of the very subtle and yet profound ways that this prayer can be so simple to recite, can fall into a category of vain repetition, and can be so left wanting if not truly lived out. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, pursue God every day and offer him access to the needs of your life on a daily basis that he could meet. This is maybe the least favorite part of the Lord's Prayer for most of us because how many of us either are now or would like to be in a position where you wake up tomorrow morning and what you need must be provided by God? This is a literal Give me food to eat, the daily sustenance of my life. This is a challenging prayer because most of us do not have such a rhythm with God and most of us do not live in a time or age where we are required to live in that way. And yet there's something that can go farther and much deeper for our daily need for God to move in our life. What are you depending on God for today? What are you living for today that God must provide for your life. I thought about this particular petition of the prayer as I was preparing a sermon. It's like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all I'm thinking about is Sunday. I'm like, Lord, on Sunday, will you give me words to speak? On Sunday, will you allow ears to hear? And on Sunday, will you move through the, the hearts and minds of your people so that they would love you more and pray to you more? And part of me was like, you know, Sunday will take care of itself. Jesus will go on to say, probably rooted in a, a, a teaching a method by which you're praying every day for God to provide, he will now go on to say in Matthew chapter six, don't worry about what you're gonna eat. God will provide. And then he says, and don't even worry about tomorrow because tomorrow is full of its own trouble. And I have found that so often in my lack of prayer for my own life, It is because I don't listen to the daily rhythm of prayer and I only do the opposite. I only pray for my worries. I only pray for my anxieties. I only pray for the big ticket things that will live tomorrow or one year or five years into the future. And the daily things are just swept under the rug because there's too much to pray about in the future. Today has plenty of things for you to pray about. If you're worried about tomorrow, here's what Jesus says. Wake up really early in the morning tomorrow and pray about tomorrow. Take your list of worries and anxieties that live beyond today and put them where they belong. Allow God to give you the wisdom and the discernment that you need for tomorrow and open your hands for the wisdom and the discernment and the goodness and the kindness that you lead, that you live today. Not only will this cure an up and down prayer life where you're only praying through worry and you're only thinking about the future and when you come to those calm seasons of your life, you're out of things to pray for, it will also stir in you a praise life. Because when you give God opportunity to meet you every single day, the faithfulness of God will be on display and he will give you your daily needs. He will give you the thing that you need for today to not only be provided for, but also to have in your heart that, joyful thanksgiving that comes from the God who is moving in your life. Let me give you one of my favorite examples of a story that reminds me the joy of living through my fear of actually trusting God day by day by day. It comes from a missionary named George Mueller. You may have heard of him. Uh, He did great work in the country of England to provide for over 100,000 orphans over his ministry life. And the story that is so incredible about the ministry that he did for these children is that he did everything by testing the power of prayer. He was really in his journal and all his writings, you'll see that he was never someone who wanted to go to a church and raise funds. Not that you can't do that as the Lord leads. He was never someone that had a network of people giving to his cause. He was someone that just wanted to find out what would happen if he did nothing but pray and follow as the Lord answers. And there's one excerpt from the biography of George Mueller that is like the story that inspires me so much. Why can't I live more like this, Lord? So uh, this is one of the orphanages that the Lord started in his ministry. And he comes to one of those strange moments where you actually need to pray for provision. And he does so in a way that gives all of us an example. He says, one morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the pantry and no money to buy food. The children were standing waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, Children, you know we must be in time for school. So he lifts his hands and prayed, Dear Father, we thank you for what we are going to eat this morning. So imagine the picture. There's orphans. They're dressed and ready for school, standing in line in the cafeteria before they go to school to get their breakfast. And he says, hey, you guys can't be late, so we better get praying. And his prayer was, thanks for the food, Lord. No money, no food, no pantry. And this proceeds. It says, there was, in that instant, a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m., and I baked some fresh bread, and I brought it to you now. He's like, amen. Amen here's the bread, kids. (laughs) Second knock on the door. As Mr. Mueller was uh, thanking the baker, no sooner had he left when there was another knock on the door. It was the milkman who announced that the milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. And he would like to give the children the cans of fresh milk before it went bad so he could empty his wagon and fix it. I've always loved the picture of trusting God so intimately for what you need for the day that you get to see God work. And isn't it funny how God works? God works by waking someone else up in the middle of the night in prayer and saying, I need to inconvenience you slightly to go bring some bread to some other brother. God works by breaking down a car so that someone can use that opportunity to be used by God. And just as a reminder in this story, your inconveniences the way that your life sometimes breaks according to your plan, that's where you filter those through, God, kingdom come, will be done. How is your kingdom represented in my truck breaking and my milk going sour? How is your will being done in me parked right outside of this orphanage to give it all away? Your prayer life will turn into praise and your praise will turn into provision and your provision will turn into the amazing petitions of your heart to know that God actually moves on behalf of the prayers of his people. So the question is, do you wanna see him move daily? Or do you wanna wait once in a while to be reminded that God's alive and he hears the prayers of his people and he is faithful to respond to the cries and the petitions of your heart? Give me this day my daily bread. Now built into this prayer, we have the purpose of kingdom and the will of God. We have the power of God's name on display and the intimacy of the Father God. We have the provisions of God that all of this should be a rhythm of your life. And now is the rhythm of your life. We also get this incredible reminder and access and invitation into the gospel, the good news of what it is we worship God for every time we gather and every time we pray. He says, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. At the heart of the revival of God's people is to cry out to God for forgiveness. It is the heart of the gospel. God desires none to perish. We think back to two weeks ago when we realized that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, can all be qualified as enemies of God who has trespassed against his love and perfect will for our lives. And the gospel says that while we were still dead in our trespasses, God was dying on the cross through his son, pouring out the wrath of God onto the cross, forgiving us of our sins. Now, simple yet profound. Remember, the daily rhythm of this prayer. You might be thinking, okay, I'm forgiven. Does that change day to day? No, you're forgiven. You're, you're, your life is given to God. Your name is written in the book of heaven. And yet, even though that is doctrinally true and theologically sound in your mind, do you ever feel like all of us do unforgiven? Do you ever feel less than forgiven? Do you ever get reminded of the failures? Do you ever get reminded of all of the ways that you have failed to love God and all of the the ways that you have failed to love people? Your reminders of the broken relationship, the violated trust, the ways you let people down? Do you ever feel a little bit condemned coming to church? If not, what's the secret? (laughs) The secret is to be reminded and to confess And to experience that God's forgiveness is real and you can live every day under the standing of forgiven. Because the Bible says that when you confess your sins, he's just to forgive you. The Bible says that we are all justified but also being sanctified, which means that you have good standing with God in eternity, but he's also cleansing you from the pitfalls of the fallen world that we live in. And there is a rhythm to your life to be reminded once again, today you are forgiven. Today, his mercies are new. Today, the gospel is true. Today, I wore white to church today. Nice, bright white shirt. And this is always a challenge specifically at church because if you wear white, it picks up everything, right? I can't believe I made it to second service and it's still pretty white because there's two things that are just a horrible combination that you find in church One of them is Sunday's best. You put on clothes that are fresh and crisp, and then we all walk around with coffee in our in our hands, and then we greet each other, and it's like splash and 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 spill over and stain all the time. I'm always like, Oh man, it's dangerous to wear white. But it's also a reminder. This is kind of a picture of the daily life that we live before God. Because God says that we are new creations. We, we take off the filthy robes that, that we were clothed in by our sin, and we put on white, and yet, day by day by day, in the, the new robes of Christ, we get the dust of the world, don't we? It's like, why did I do that? What was I thinking? What a failure. And he says, now come, today. God, forgive me once again. Proclaim forgiveness over my life that I can walk boldly, that I can rejoice, that I can be humbled by my need for you. I'm not enough without you. I am not good apart from you by your spirit. I can do all things and apart from you, my flesh profits me nothing. I need to be forgiven today and I need to stand boldly that I am forgiven today. And when you have this, you will have boldness. You will have hearts full of thanksgiving for the cleansing power that happens daily. And you will have a forgiving heart. This is part of the gospel made alive in the daily rhythm of prayer to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. This prayer, when it becomes more than religion and when it becomes more than repetition, when it becomes something that comes from a quiet, secret place of your own heart before God, will bring you to your knees in your need for the power of the Holy Spirit. The cross is the method by which God forgives us. It says that while we were dead in sins, he forgave us. It says in Colossians that he took the regulations of our failures against the law and he nailed them to the cross. That's why when we take communion together, we remember his body and his blood spilled for us so that we can stand in our forgiveness. Without a cross, there is no forgiveness. But then Jesus says if anyone desires to follow me, pick up your cross. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness. I love this quote and I'll share it with you now. I've shared it before but I wanna add an enhancement to it. It says this, if you follow Jesus, the cross will find you. There is no following Jesus without entering by the narrow way of the cross for forgiveness and carrying the cross towards forgiveness. There's, there's no forgiveness without the cross. There's no following Jesus without the cross finding you. And here's the enhancement of the quote. If you follow the way of Jesus, the cross will find you, and maybe more than any other way that it will find you is through the selfless, flesh-crucifying, spirit-empowered act of forgiving those who have trespassed against you. There are no grudges, There is no bitterness, there is no hardness of heart towards those who have trespassed against you within the receiving of the good news gospel that you are forgiven. And there is no forgiveness without the power of prayer. Forgiveness does not come by gritting your teeth, or studying the Bible and understanding the good theology of the forgiveness of the cross, forgiveness comes in the presence of God every day to say, God, you are God. And if your kingdom comes in my life, it means that I'm forgiven. And it means that anyone who has wronged me is going to experience a cup of cold water in the gospel when I say to them, forgiven. And so now we come to our knees again because how many of us, all of us, walk the tightrope of the gospel, receiving the needed forgiveness so that we can have this incredible fellowship with God and also giving the God-glorifying forgiveness so that we don't break fellowship with man. By the power of prayer, we will know that we're forgiven and we will extend forgiveness to others. He says, now do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, there's such an interesting progression in the Lord's Prayer as we begin by restoring a heart of worship and knowledge of who He is in an intimate way because He's our Father. As we restore day by day, the purpose of our lives as followers of Christ is not to build our own kingdom, but to be part of His kingdom advancement in our own hearts and through our own lives. And then as we learn to be dependent on Him for every need of our daily rhythm of life, allowing the gospel to be reassured in our heart and then given to whoever God gives us. And then remembering this, that following the way of Jesus is full of temptation. There will be all sorts of ways that this message will land on your ears. And as you leave the sanctuary, you'll be tempted to never do a thing about it, to never change one aspect of the way that you pursue God or the way that you are uh, valuing your own spiritual reputation in the religious theater. There will be a temptation to only go so far in the Lord's Prayer and to leave forgiveness out of it or to leave provision out of it. There will be a temptation to not pray at all. And what Jesus is saying is, lead us away from all of that. Lead us away from anything that would break this heart's cry to you, Father, that we would be people who are genuine in prayer and genuine in life because we are not going down the road of temptation. I love that Jesus says, lead us away from temptation and not sin even. So cleansed in our sanctification that we desire to follow him so closely that we would avoid temptation altogether. They say the best way to skip dessert is to avoid the first bite. Have you noticed that? (laughs) It's like, man, it's like so good in your diet. And just try one spoon, we're going to share the whole thing, and then you take over the dessert. They say a diet breaks not in the kitchen but in the grocery store. It's like what you bring into your house is actually the the, the way that you're tempting yourself into sin against your diet. And the same is true of your spiritual life. So often we come to church and we're like, okay, I, I think I got what I needed. Now where was I? And we open the computer screens and we hang out in all the places we know are not bringing a God-glorifying kingdom work into our life. I've heard it said that we wake up and we get the little screen and then we go to work and we get the medium-sized screen and then we come home and we get the big screen. It's like from phone to laptop to entertainment of the television. And we have all of these ways that, that maybe those aren't sin, but they just lead us into areas that will take us away from God. And Jesus says, as a daily rhythm, think about the steps that you're taking today. Allow God to direct your path and lead you towards his perfect will for your life. And to be reminded that part of this prayer is a prayer for deliverance. And I I just, believers, disciples, it's not all of you, but disciples and believers, believers, this is our prayer from Jesus to our hearts for the confidence to know that all authority belongs to God in a day and age where I receive so many people worried about the snares of the enemy. Are we gonna call out this political thing? Cause that seems like a real dangerous, evil thing. And we can as needed. Are we going to figure out what's happening to the youth of our generation? Because there's, there's just snares everywhere. There's evil everywhere. And we've got to maneuver a methodology and figure out how to have the conversation. And in our daily prayer, this is what we pray. God, you deliver us. We belong to your power and your authority. And your word says, Lord, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And what we need before methodology and before the right sermon to uh, uh, attack the evil of our age and and the right program or political agenda, what we need more than anything is people who will bend their knee before God and say, God, you alone deliver us. Use politics or use sermons or use church, but deliver us from the evil of our age, God. And you know when we pray that, what happens? We're praying to the only one who can deliver. It is God and God alone who will redeem the time. It, you cry out to the Lord for deliverance of your own life, for the sins that you struggle with, and God will hear your cry. And it is the scriptural support to the, the quote that we heard in the very beginning of all of this, because as E.M. Bounds says, we don't need methodology. We need men and women who will pray to God so that God can use them and anoint them. And it's the same with deliverance. It says in Second Chronicles, God talking to Solomon, as Solomon is considering this temple that he just built. And he wants the presence of God to come alive so that people can be revived and know the Lord. And this is the, what the Lord says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them their sins and I will hear heal their land. Have you found yourself over the course of the last year looking at the circumstances of our world and feeling less than hopeful? Have you found yourself over the course of the last year finding yourselves rubbing up against evil and and the snares of the enemy and, and just wishing that it would just be destroyed? Every day you pursue God. And part of that prayer is to say, Lord, I acknowledge I live in an evil world, but you have deliverance. By the power of God, you can overcome the power of sin. When the people of God trust that we we live under the banner of a God of redemption, we will see deliverance happen in our age. And this is the end of this prayer that should give all of us the confidence because Jesus says now, we end by saying this, God, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We started this sermon by thinking about the remedy for hypocrisy and dead religion. And we end by saying you come to the presence of God with hearts of worship and expectation in a daily manner. And you say this simple thing and you will be cured from deadness. Your glory, God. This is, this is, anything good in this sanctuary is part of your kingdom, your authority over my life. And may you be glorified in all that we do. It cures the motive, it cures the dead method, it cures the religious theater that God forever would be glorified. Now, I'll end with a question that is really for the disciples of Christ among us. What would our lives and our families and our churches across the nation look like if we cared less about what we sounded like before men, what people thought of us in the day and age we live in, and we cared more about genuinely knowing this Father in heaven, to know him in this way? to seek him in a quiet, genuine way every day of our life. As you consider the question, let me offer an answer. I don't know if there's a sinner's prayer. I don't think the Bible gives us a remedy for sinners to pray what it means to come into the kingdom. But I do believe that anyone who finds the secret place and seeks after this God in this way, will find that God alive in their life. They will find the answers to the questions and the decisions of those life-size problems. They'll find a comfort for the needs of their life they'll find the power over temptation, the confidence to be delivered. Believer, God is just saying, come to me. Go beyond this. This is a privilege and it's incredible that we get to gather and and be corporate in our worship and our prayer and our seeking. But God is saying, I want you. I want you to know me. I want you to know me as your father. Pursue God in that way. And if you're not a disciple, we'll end with this. I'm so glad you're here. I can't think of a better way for you to hear about the love of God than by hearing this simple way for you to interact with him in your own life. What would happen as you've been an outsider looking into church, if you've been someone that's thought about God but never known how to know him, What would happen if you prayed this prayer? I encourage you to find out.